Would you join me in praying? Gracious Heavenly Father, as we open your word together, we pray that our hearts and minds would be receptive to your Holy Spirit. Lord, that all of the thoughts and the concerns and the things that might weigh on us, for these moments, we would be able to lift that and to really hear from you. Lord, help us to become more like Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So, I would like to do something to begin that only involves the women. If you live in Illinois, would you raise your hand? If you live in Iowa, would you raise your hand? All right, if your hand is up, go ahead and leave it up, those Iowans. If you raise your, your hand is up right now, a little over 100 years ago, you could not vote. You can put them down now. If you lived in Illinois, even though the 19th Amendment had not been ratified yet, you could still vote in Illinois, but not in Iowa, just across the river. In fact, there were numerous states that women could not vote in. But in 1919, the Senate and the House both passed the 19th Amendment. However, in order for that to take effect, 36 states had to ratify it. In the mid-1920s, mid-1920, not 20s, the actual 1920, 35 states had ratified. They needed one more for the 19th Amendment to pass. Of all the states left, there was only one that there was any hope that it would actually vote in favor of it, Tennessee. And what happened is the upper house voted overwhelmingly to approve The lower house was evenly divided. To this point, everyone knew how significant the vote was going to be, how close the vote was going to be. And so when the vote came up, 150 lobbyists came into Nashville. On one side of the lower house of Tennessee were 48 people wearing yellow roses signifying we are for this. On the other side were 48 wearing red roses, saying we are against. Now, if it was 48-48, it would fail. So those against called for an initial vote of let's postpone this. Let's just table it. But they couldn't get that extra vote, which means they had to vote at that moment, would Tennessee ratify the 19th Amendment? And to introduce you to somebody, this is Harry Byrne. Harry was part of the lower house in Tennessee. He's a Republican. He's 24 years old, very young, two years into service. He voted to table it. He wore a red rose. However, When the vote came to actually ratify the amendment, he went forward with his red rose and he voted for the amendment. At the end, it came out 49-47. It passed. 
because that young man voted for it, in 1920, all women would get the right to vote. If he had not changed his vote, it would have happened at some point, but it would not have happened at that point. It would have failed. The next day, they asked him why. So at the end of it, after the vote was cast and he flipped, anti-suffragists chased him out a window. They were so upset that he would do that. And he was asked, why? Why did you change your vote? This is a letter. It's a picture of the original letter. He had this in his pocket during the vote. It is a letter from his mother. His mother told him, be a good boy. Vote for this. And he said, a boy always does well when he listens to his mother. The reason in 1920, women across America were given the legal right to vote is because a boy listened to his mommy. (laughs) What does that say? That's my whole lesson today. Just listen to your mom. (laughs) But what is so interesting to me about this is people knew there was some indecision in him. People knew there was some struggle. And everyone, I cannot tell you the number of people that were trying to sway him one way or another. The voices that were for and against. The voices that were angry. All of these people trying to get him to go one direction or another direction. But one voice stood out to him And that one voice defined the decision that he made. My question for us today, what voice do you most listen to? We all have voices going on throughout our lives. We've got friends and family and work. We've got politics and economics and religion We've got everything going on online, on the news, around the world. I mean, there are so many voices, and especially today, there are so many voices. What voice do you listen to the most? For Harry, in that moment, it was his mother. Even if it meant being chased out a window afterwards, it was his mother. What voice do you listen to? And I guess maybe what we should ask, and are going to, what voice did Jesus most listen to? And, and I know you can, you know, quickly off the top of your head, you can probably, well, I know what the answer to that is. He listened to God. I mean, yeah, it's his church and, you know. But I want us to think about that for a moment. Because how many voices did he have competing for his attention? He also had a family and friends and a really close-knit hometown. Later on, he would have followers. He would have those very close to him. He would have those that were more distant. He would have religious leaders who invited him into his home and tried to sway him to different things. He would have political people. He would have the devil himself speaking into his life. Jesus had all these voices speaking into his life. 
which one did he listen to the most? What stood above all the others? Because here's the thing. Not every voice is wrong, right? I mean, your, your parents or teachers or maybe an employee. Or, I mean, there's all kinds of voices that can be good. And there's, of course, voices that are not good. But what's the one that stands out? In our gospel reading, verse 17, a voice from heaven said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And I would make the argument very strongly that that is the voice that stood above every other voice in his life. And you can see it in multiple points throughout his life, not just here. I mean, that moment, that is a really, really significant moment because he has lived on the earth at that point somewhere between 30 and 33 years. And it's the beginning of his ministry. That's the point where he's going to be tested and it will become public. He will begin to bring the gospel. How does it start? The father says, this is my son whom I love. But earlier on, when he was 12 years old, his family had come from Nazareth. They'd gone to Jerusalem for a festival. Likely a whole caravan of folks went. It would have been, I mean, that village, if you go to Nazareth, Nazareth, it was probably around 20 homes. And they would have all known each other. Many of them would have been related. And so this whole group goes up to Nazareth. And then something happens a little bit like Home Alone. Anybody seen the movie Home Alone, where the boy gets left behind? That happens to Jesus. He gets left behind in Jerusalem. And likely in all of the chaos and all of the people, somebody thought Jesus was with them and somebody else thought them. But they get a ways away, and his parents realize he's gone. So they head back. They're distraught. They find him in the temple. And you can imagine being a parent. They're like, what in the world Like, where have you been? How could you not have gone with us? And his response is this. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? His father's voice, even from 12, it was such a powerful voice in his life. Later on in his own ministry, as he is talking with all of these religious leaders, he says this. By myself, I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear. And my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. For Jesus, the primary voice was the voice of his Father over all the other ones. What is it for us? And here's why I ask the question. This is the thing I want you to hear. What we listen to shapes what we believe. The voices we're hearing, and especially the ones we actually take seriously, they're shaping what we believe. And that is really, really significant. So at the beginning of this week, at an auction, this vase sold. The vase is from the 20th century, so it's kind of old. Um, I saw a vase very similar to this this past week at Target. It was $17.99, but it was not this vase. This vase, experts who took the vase, looked over it, they did all the evaluation, believed it was worth somewhere around 
$2,000. Do you imagine paying $2,000 for a vase? So it goes up for auction. It went nuts. Dozens of people began a bidding war for this vase. And last week, this approximately $2,000 vase sold for $7.5 million. Here's what the director of the auction house said. If the bidders fought it out to this amount, there's a reason. For them, hear that, for them, the vase is old. Many of them believed it was from the 18th century, despite all of the experts saying otherwise. But all that mattered was this. What did they believe? Because that is what they acted from. Whether your beliefs are real or false, whether they're true or not true, in some ways don't matter. Because all that matters is do you believe them? I mean, think about today. How many crazy theories are out there that people believe? And they absolutely believe them. And it doesn't matter if somebody comes along and shows evidence one way or another. If you believe it, you believe it. And what? You act on it. What we believe is really powerful. For Jesus, what did he believe? Um, There's a a really interesting little account in the Gospel of Matthew. And I want to read it to you because it gives you an idea of what Jesus believed. This is out of Matthew chapter 12. And Jesus has just done something that the religious leaders really, really don't like. He is healed on the Sabbath. And at the end of it, it says this in verse 14. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. There's one translation that uses the word assassinate. Because that carries the Greek idea. It wasn't just kill. It was how do we assassinate him? How do we find a secret way to take him out? And Jesus is aware of this. And so verse 15 says this. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment. You learn that a group of powerful leaders in your society want to kill you, want to take you out. And so you withdraw. What kinds of thoughts are going through your head when you withdraw? I'm going to tell you what Jesus was thinking according to the gospel. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew to that place, withdrew from that place. A large crowd followed him and he healed all who were ill. He warned them not to tell others about him. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. In his head right now, and often this is true, they knew the Old Testament so well that they were thinking it. But this is the passage That is part of what Jesus is doing is he withdrew from all of this threat. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight. What did the father say to him at his baptism? This is my son whom I love. What does Jesus believe? He absolutely believes he is 100% unconditionally loved by the father. It's his core belief. Out of all the voices that are out there, 
that's the one that sticks with him. That's the voice that starts his ministry. That's the voice and the belief that he hears halfway through his ministry. It was like more than halfway, really. It's right before he's heading to Jerusalem. At the transfiguration, when he starts glowing, and they all are, a few of the disciples are up there with him on the hill, the voice comes out and says, this is my son whom I love. Why is that moment so significant? He's heading to the cross. That's the moment when he goes that way. Again, whom I love. That is the belief for Jesus. So, let me just, there's lots of voices. What's the one you listen to the most? Why? Because it's informing what you believe. And what we believe, we act on. And to an even greater degree, and this is my last thing, our beliefs shape our identity. So, for Harry, that's a moment He followed the voice of his mom. He believed, I'm going to do this in this moment. It doesn't necessarily mean that's who he was deep down. It might be, but that's a moment. But over time, the things we most dearly believe shape who we define ourselves as. It's the difference between saying, I don't eat meat and I am a vegetarian. Those are two different things. One of them is stating, I am this. Well, over time, that's what our beliefs do. They shape identity. Jesus believed he was the beloved child of God. That was his belief. And it would shape his identity. Here's how powerful identity is. This is Diane Nash, the woman right there in the front. In that picture, she is in her early 20s. She was a student at a Tennessee college in Nashville. This is her marching down Jefferson Street. She became a leader at a young age in the civil rights movement. Recently, in fact, just a week ago, a book was released by Thomas E. Ricks called A Military History of the Civil Rights Movement. He said about her in a chapter, there was something that made her such a powerful leader. There was something that made her able to do everything she could do, even at such a young age. And it was that she knew her identity. She had defined what she was about, what the movement would be about that she was a part of, and she stuck to it. And this is how she self-defined These were her words. We are people who are no longer willing to live with segregation. Now, we understand you may kill us for that, but that's your problem, not ours. That was not just a statement. It became a belief that shaped into identity for Diane Nash. And it was so powerful that in 1961, she became one of the Freedom Riders, In fact, she became the leader of a small group of freedom riders. So these are people who rode buses in southern states where buses were still being segregated. The first group that ever did it, that group was met in Alabama by a mob carrying baseball bats, pipes, bombs. 
The tires were slashed on the bus. A firebomb was thrown through the window. The bus came on fire. That group had to exit. They were met by this mob and ultimately had to abandon what they were doing. Diane organized the next one. After that had happened with a group of college students. In organizing this, it was such a big deal that the Attorney General of the United States learned about it. And he learned that some woman named Diane Nash was organizing a group of college students to lead them on another one of these rides after one group had almost been killed. The first thing he said to his assistant, who the hell is Diane Nash? And then call her and tell her to stop. The assistant called her and said, you guys can't do this. This is too dangerous. This is what she told him. And it comes out of this identity. We know that. We know it's too dangerous. Before we get on the bus, we write a letter to our parents and we sign our wills. When you have an identity, it gives you strength. It lets you do things you would not do otherwise. The question is, what is your identity? For Jesus, this is it. He's a beloved child of God. And at the very end of his ministry, the very last thing he prays with his own disciples is this right here. It's very similar to what she did. It's kind of his self-identifying. This is the end of John chapter 17. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you. And they know you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known. Listen, in order that... If you were summing up your entire ministry, what would it be? If you were summing up your life and your purpose and your mission, what would it be? Jesus says, in order that they, in order that the love you have for me, the love that started my ministry, the love that encouraged me partway through my ministry, the love I thought about when they were coming to attack me, the love you have for me may in, be in them and that I myself may be in them. Jesus 100% absolutely believed he was loved by God. And that belief gave him strength because that was his identity. Have you ever been rejected? You ever been betrayed? You ever been in a situation where you felt like if I don't do something different with myself, I won't fit in, so you changed who you were to fit in? Have you ever been asked to prove yourself? We've all been in these situations, right? And how many times in those moments did we not act the way we might want to? Do you know that Jesus goes through every one of those things? Do you know if you walk through the Gospels, you can watch him lose followers, be attacked, have false things said about him, be betrayed, the devil, right after this moment where the father says, this is my son with whom I, am a love, whom I love, right after that, the devil begins to challenge the identity of Jesus right away. Do you know he never breaks? He never turns away. He never second guesses. He never changes who he is. Why? Because the God of all of the universe loves him. 
What could be more powerful than that? That needs to be our primary identity. So, when the last home we lived in in Texas, when we moved into that house, we're moving all the boxes in, we're kind of setting everything up. It's total chaos as it is when you move, right? And our dog, our lab, is in the backyard. And at some point, somebody unknowingly, and I think it may have actually been one of the movers who was helping with some of the larger stuff, unknowingly opened the gate and our lab shot out. Now, when she shot out, number one, she's in a brand new neighborhood. We had just moved. She recognizes nothing. Number two, my lab is a little bit crazy and she just starts running. Like she's just darting between homes and then back through another home and my wife heads out and my daughter heads out. And I think even the movers, like people were just yelling. They're all trying to get this dog to come back. And this dog is hearing all of these voices shouting at her. And you know what she's doing? Just running crazy. I mean, she's just, zoom, zoom. she has no idea what to do. And at some point, I'm hearing all of the chaos. And I come out. And Aaron is like, the dog is out. And I get out in the middle of the street, and I see the dog, like, I don't know, maybe 200 feet from me. And she has stopped for a moment. I think she wore herself out. And she's right there in the middle of the street. And I said, Catherine, come here. And she gets up. She sees me. Ah, tail starts wagging. She just runs right to me. And she stops. And I take her inside. And it's not because my lab doesn't love my wife and my kids. In fact, she'll love anyone. Just come to my house. She'll love you like crazy, far more than you want her to love you. It's because in the chaos of all of the voices, there is a voice she listens to above all the others. It's the alpha in her life. I did not choose that title, by the way. I'd prefer I didn't have it. I'd love for my wife to have it. It's her dog. But the dog chose me. That voice stood out about all the other voices. And it gave her calm. It gave her direction. It led her back home. If you will listen to the voice of your father above all the other voices, it can do the same. No matter what's going on, no matter what the voices are, Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your love for us. Lord, help that to become the strongest part of our identity. Lord, I pray right now for every person in here who may doubt your love for them, that they would be overwhelmed by how much you love them. I pray for each one of us who take for granted that love, that it would be more real to us every day. I pray we would hear the voice that says, you are my beloved child. And it would stand above the fray. 
that we might draw strength and peace and guidance from that knowledge, from that voice. We ask this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.